History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme, Joseph McDonough, a forgotten revolutionary. It's just fascinating to me that Joseph McDonough, you know, a man of such ability and like the amount of roles he was involved in during the revolution period, like the tireless energy he put into all of them, it's just been really eclipsed and forgotten. The life and tragic death of an influential figure in the Irish revolutionary movement. Also, old little town of Bethlehem. We have an oral culture. So generation after generation, they was telling each other that this is the birthplace of Jesus. We visit the historic town in the West Bank, a site of pilgrimage for Christians for almost 2,000 years. Plus, the men and women of the Anglo-Irish treaty delegations. The background people, the couriers, the, um, the bodyguards, the, the secretaries, there's some lovely stories which we got from the families. We'll hear about some of the lesser-known people who assisted the treaty negotiators in London. Joseph McDonough was one of the generation who devoted their lives to the struggle for Irish freedom in early 20th century Ireland. The younger brother of Thomas McDonough, he was a pivotal figure in the Irish revolutionary movement. A TD, Minister for Labour, political prisoner, hunger striker and a vocal opponent of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. He died tragically young at the age of 38 on Christmas Day 1922, leaving behind a wife and young family. Yet, McDonough was so highly regarded by his contemporaries, uh, he's still one of the most forgotten figures of the Irish Revolution. A new book, Alderman Joseph McDonough TD, Tipperary's Forgotten Revolutionary Politician, tells his story. And joining me this evening to discuss McDonough's life is the author, historian Gerard Shannon. And you're very welcome indeed, uh, Gerard, to the History Show. Thank you, Miles. We were talking beforehand and saying how the, how the word forgotten in the title of books to do with Irish history is often roundly abused. I think it's fair to say it's absolutely accurate in this case. Totally overshadowed, obviously, by his older brother, signatory to the proclamation executed in 1916, a very romantic figure, a poet, and all of the above. Tell me a bit about the McDonough family and where Joseph McDonough fits in. Well, the McDonough family came from Clock Jordan in North Tipperary. Joseph was the youngest of six siblings. He was born in 1883. He was a son of Mary and Joseph McDonough Sr., who were both school teachers. They set up their national school in Clock Jordan. And the impression that we get when we read accounts of McDonough family life, they really cultivated a household steeped in kind of culture and music and so on that kind of certainly stirred the creativity of the McDonough siblings. Of course, Thomas is the most well-known. There's also Jack McDonough, who became a famous playwright, also took part in 1916. This also would have included Joseph as well. And there's kind of accounts of his childhood from his uh, sister Mary, who became known as the nun Sister Francesca. She talks about Joseph being a very kind of outgoing and loud child. But as he kind of progresses through school and through studies, he becomes very gifted in mathematics. He has a very kind of great mind for numbers and that. And it's certainly gifts he puts to later use, as we'll discuss in his revolutionary career. Does that make him very different to his brother? I mean, when we think of, of Thomas McDonough, we think of the, the academic, yes. we think of the, the literary figure, we yes. think of the, the poet. I don't know whether he was good at maths or not, but uh, does that make Joseph McDonough very different to him? The brothers were very close, but yes, there were differences between them. I think what was described to me by one relative of Joseph McDonough is that, like, Thomas was certainly the more, maybe the more 
artistic poetic type whereas Joseph would have been more kind of the pragmatic analytical type like I mean there's no account of Joseph McDonough ever writing you know reams of poetry as Thomas did I mean there are some accounts that he was very gifted with the clarinet there's mentions of fundraising for St. Edna's where like Joseph McDonough's report is playing the clarinet at some events and so on but I and he acted in some plays in the Irish Theatre Company that his brother Thomas had set up in Dublin but I think that's as far as his kind of you know involvement in the cultural movement went uh, Did he play any part himself in the 1916 Rising? Uh, he tried to um, there's a brief mention in his obituary he might have been involved in the volunteers before 1916 but he doesn't seem to have been aware of the plans by the IRB of course his brother Thomas is on the IRB Military Council the head of the garrison there at Jacob's Biscuit Factory. His brother Jack is there with Thomas and Jacob's Biscuit Factory. According to accounts at the time and his letters that he wrote after, he did try to get into the city during Easter week when he heard the fighting began. He used the disguise of a local priest. He was based in Charles at the time. He borrowed a, a cape and a, you know, a cap from a local priest. But the, he couldn't get through the British Army barricades sitting yeah. into Dublin City. And unfortunately, he wasn't able to take part in the fighting and he, he had to turn back. He appears to have liked dressing up as a priest, all right. Uh, yes. was, he, was he in the IRB himself? Was he involved in the IRB? No, there's no mention of that at all. Like, he definitely seems to have been out of the planning of, of that. And he certainly doesn't seem to have been informed by Thomas that there's any fighting due to begin that week. But he does become, nonetheless, a prominent figure after the Rising, yes. even though he's not directly involved. Uh, yeah. Tell me about his, his rise to prominence. Well, it begins actually with his move to Dublin after the Rising. So at the time he was working for the Inland Tax Revenue in Turles, in Tipperary, and his superiors tried to move him to Birmingham because of his you know, relation to Thomas. And he, instead of kind of going along with it, he actually resigns. He moves his young family up to Dublin. He, he had married a lady called uh, Margaret or May O'Toole several years before. They had two children at the time. And he becomes principal of St. Edna's. Like, so he's the first principal of St. Edna's after, after Pierce. Pierce. After no. Pierce, yeah. So kind of keeping the McDonough kind of connection mm. to the uh, school there. He becomes very quickly involved in Sinn Féin. Like Sinn Féin begins rebuilding, as we know, in the months after the Rising itself. He becomes very close to Kemp Plunkett. And when Kemp Plunkett is elected in Roscommon, McDonough's part of that group that kind of advocated more Republican policy on the part of Sinn Féin. He's elected to the executive following the Ardèche in November 1917. And there's numerous accounts through 1917 to 1918 of McDonough addressing crowds, addressing meetings of Sinn Féin. He's always introduced as the brother of Thomas McDonough. Like, that's where his association is, is of course. But he, he becomes a very gifted speaker, a very popular speaker. Like, I mean, you see this in numerous accounts, well, the brief accounts that we have of his life. People are talking about his, his gift with speech, his way with words and so on. Like, he seemed to be able to really hook a crowd in and that, of course, brings him to the attention of the authorities then by mid-1917. And he ends up in jail. Whenever he ends up in jail, his period there is nothing if not interesting. Tell us yeah. about his first period of incarceration then in 1917. So in July 1917, he addresses two public meetings in mid-1917. And he is arrested thereafter because the RSC recorders are marched to the crowd, which are very kind of... Um, He's accused of trying to incite the crowd to attack the RIC, essentially, and he he becomes his own defence at the subsequent trial, but he's then arrested under the defence against the Relum Act. He's put into Mountjoy Jail, where at the time there's other political prisoners, including the most well-known, of course, Thomas Ashe. Mm. And McDonough becomes the uh, leader of the prisoners there. He's the prisoner's main representative with the prison authorities as they're seeking political status. Of course, he goes on the hunger strike as well. He is also force-fed along with Thomas Ashe and the others. And when Thomas Ashe dies in September 1917, McDonough is one of the main witnesses at the inquest. Of course, as we know, the jury kind of condemned the British authorities in Dublin Castle for Ashe's death and so on. And... He's then kind of released on compassionate grounds kind of not long thereafter due to his part in that hunger strike. And he is 
jailed again in yes. early 1918. So this is before the, the, the infamous German plot, so yeah. before everybody else gets thrown back into jail. Yeah, so he addresses a by-election meeting for Pat McCarthy in Offaly in March 1918. And again, because he was released under the Cat and Mouse Act several months before, and then he is subsequently re-arrested because of, again, remarks he the, said the, the Cat crowd. and Mouse Act is this legislation that's introduced during the, the suffragette period, mm. where they go on hunger strike and they are released. And then as soon as their strength is built up again, they're dragged yeah. back into back jail. Same yes, thing. yeah. He's then in Belfast jail, where again he becomes the leader of the Republican prisoners there. There's accounts of that. Um, one uh, contemporary of Joe's actually writes to Joe's sister Mary, and he says Joe's arrival was a bracing time for all of us. We almost wish, wish that um, martial law was declared here in the jail because he just had this tendency, once he was among them, like he kept the fight going. Like when he's in. Belfast jail, he encourages the prisoners to wreck their cells and so on. And then, of course, they go on another hunger strike. And at the time, like, this is like two years before, you know, the Terence McSweeney and the court jail hunger strike that would become more prominently known. So the British authorities are reluctant to let these hunger strikes progress very far. And then, you know, subsequently, like, they break up the prisoners, they move them. Like, Joe was moved to Dundalk and then he's moved to Reading in England, where he he's there at the time of the December 1918 election. He has something in common, obviously, with Oscar Wilde in, in uh, Reading Jail. Those yes, are two yeah. very different lives. Yeah. Uh, he stands in the 1980, or he is stood, if you like, in the 1918 general election, isn't he? Yeah, he stands for the constituency of North Tipperary, which is where, of course, Clark Jordan would have been, where he was from. And he's elected unopposed to the constituency. And there's actually a wonderful account, actually, at the time that when he's elected, that uh, there's kind of procession through the streets of Clark Jordan and the procession has three cheers for Thomas and Joe McDonough and they go outside the former McDonough family home, which of course is now the Thomas McDonough Museum in Clark Jordan. And yeah, he's elected the doll, but he's not there, unfortunately, for the first meeting of Doll Aaron in January 19. Very few of them were. Very few of them were, yes, at the outset of the War of Independence. He's still in Reading Jail. He's released on Compassionate Grounds in February 1919 because Thomas McDonough's youngest child, Donna McDonough, his son, was sick. And Joe, at the time, would have been one of the guardians for his brother's children and he's released then. So he's actually there in the very famous photo that's taken in April 1919 on the steps of the Maginot. You can kind of see him at the back. He's often in the... A lot of group photographs taken at the time. You can, you can spot him very well with, with his bald head kind of standing at the back or to the side and so on. This is the meeting of the of the second doll, which is then d- declared illegal in September 1919. Exactly. At that point, is he is he on in common with a lot of TDs, elected TDs? Is he on the run? Yeah, he's on the run. Like I mean, before that, he would have been he would have attended all the public doll sessions. Like JJ Kelly, who was deputy speaker of the doll, actually called him the finest speaker in the doll that that he had known during his time there. So he's a very public face of doll. Aaron at that point. He goes on the run subsequently from September 1919. One account of his life talks about a common disguise that he would have had was, uh, again, the priest's disguise that he would have had trying to get into Dublin during the Easter Rising. Lily O'Brennan, who was a former coming and activist, does this brilliant piece about uh, Just McDonough in the Christmas edition of the Irish Press in 1934. And she talks about that there's one particular house that he stayed in. There was a raid by the Black and Tans and he comes out the front of the house and the owner of the house walks up to him and she says, oh, thank you for Come to see me, Father, and he gave her a blessing and got on his bike and left. Like so, 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 so yeah, he was very fond of the priest disguise. Fair to say, he also becomes minister for labour. Um, how because we think of Countess Markievicz, of course, as yeah. being minister for for labour, but uh, she gets thrown in jail. Yeah, he becomes minister for labour. Well, initially, is described as acting minister for labour, but he like he's described then as the minister for labour. Not long thereafter. 
you seem to have a lot of sympathy with the working man, so to speak. Like, I mean, the description when he will discuss his involvement in local politics shortly, but on Dublin Corporation, he's supported a strike by Dublin Corporation workers at the time. So I think that probably in the eyes of some made him suited for the role of Minister for Labour. But the real kind of strength of him in that role of Minister for Labour, he was director of what became known as the Belfast Boycott. Now, he didn't begin the Belfast Boycott, but he's often referred to as the most energetic kind of director of the Belfast Boycott. Explain the origins of the Belfast Boycott, if you would. So the Belfast Boycott was an initiative begun by Dáil Éireann during the War of Independence. So basically it was in response to the Northern, Northern Ireland, of course, established at the end of 1920, there's Catholic workers you know, expelled from the docks in Belfast and so on. There's sectarian violence against the Catholic populace in Northern Ireland. So basically it was Dáil Éireann's response to that. So it asked for a boycott of businesses and firms doing business with, you know, other businesses and firms in Belfast. And there was boycott committees set up over the country, often with the involvement of local IRA commanders, of course. And Joseph McDonough becomes the director of the Belfast boycott during the War of Independence up until, you know, after the truce. And there's reams of material in the National Archives and the National Library with Joseph McDonough's name on it. Like, he is corresponding with boycott committees and business firms up and down the countries to make sure that the boycott is still going. You know, this seems to be sort of the kind of warfare that he excelled in. Like, I mean, he was a keen man for mathematics and numbers, this sort of economic warfare. Mm. Like, he seemed to really revel in this role and he was more than capable of it, according to his contemporaries at the time. Like, as well as being active as a minister for the Dáil, he was running an income tax recovery firm that he'd set up at WT Cosgrave in 1918 that initially trades as McDonough and Cosgrave and then he... he Cosgrave, He's taken the bread from the mouths of the British government, basically. Yeah, well, he, he apparently used the joke to his contemporaries that he did more harm to the British government than any other Irishman by operating this income tax recovery firm and it later trades as McDonough and Boland and it's actually his son, um, also called Joseph, kept it going for decades after his death. So, yeah, he's just a very keen gift for mathematics. Like Lilia Brennan in her retrospective in the Irish press in 1934, she'd often talk about, like, at the fireside while there was a gathering of his friends, he'd often be there in the corner, like, working out mathematical sums. So I think it just that sort of economic warfare mm. that he operated under as the director of Belfast Boycott played to his strengths. Um, let's get back to prison. Uh, yeah. <laughs> tell us how he escaped from Wormwood Scrubs in 1920. Yeah, this is a very interesting episode that I, I, I think kind of in light of the more famous hunger strikes in late 1920, it kind of gets a bit overlooked. So, yeah, he's imprisoned again. Um, he's imprisoned actually during the War of Independence and uh, yeah, he's sent to Wormwood Scrubs. There's a hunger strike there, much to the disapproval of the likes of Cahill Brewer and Michael Collins. Cahill Brewer particularly is against the hunger strike because again, this is before the kind of lengthy hunger strikes by McSweeney and others like Dal Aaron, like or the or the cabinet are not keen on you know Republicans going on hunger strike. But essentially, when the hunger strike begins in Warren Scrubs, they move the prisoners to various hospitals within London. And Joe McDonough, again taking the leadership role amongst the prisoners, encourages them all to leave. Just walk out. Just walk out, <laughs> essentially. And Michael Collins is very critical of this because you know if they walk out of the hospital, they have to get home somehow. Who has to pay for that? The doll has to pay the for minister that. for finance. Yes, the minister for finance. And Collins says, I, I think it's either to Brewer or one, one of the ministers he writes, he goes, Oh, more money lost the British Crown, like because they have to pay for the prisoners to come home. But McDonough comes home then subsequently, and then he's greeted by his uh, peers on Dublin Corporation because he was a big component of uh, local politics as well in Dublin at the time. Uh, January 1920, of course, is the city elections. He's elected to two councils in Dublin City. He's elected the Merchants Key Award, where he becomes alderman. He tops the poll there. And then he becomes a member of the Rap Mines Town Council. Now, what's interesting about Rap Mines, it was actually one of the few councils that was actually a slight unionist majority mm. on it. And there's a very interesting account 
in January in newspaper account that um, McDonough tries to propose a, a contemporary in Sinn Féin for the role of chairman. And the chairman, who the previous chairman, says, Mr. McDonough will refrain from discussing politics. And McDonough says, well, according to the British government, like, I'm not discussing politics. The war is only a pure riot, according to the British government. Like, I mean, you see this in exchanges in the Dáil and newspaper accounts. Like, he's a, he's a very sharp mind and he's, a, he's kind of great humour that he displays. Like, even when he's writing to Margaret Pierce, uh, Patrick Pierce's mother, that he can't kind of keep up the role in St. Hennes, he said, well, this is a rescue for me. I didn't think I needed it till I was here in prison, you know. So he kind of has a great humour throughout. And, and- and after his escape from Wormwood Scrubs, uh, obviously he is—he's a wanted man. He would be sought after by the authorities. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're, you know, we're back to the priesthood again. He basically dresses up as a priest in order, consistently, in order to yes. escape, escape re-arrest. Yes, I mean, and like he very rarely would have stayed at home. Like there's even one newspaper account that came to my attention recently that his home was actually—he he lived in Ratmines with his family. Like his home was raided on Bloody Sunday, like along with other kind of high-profile figures. So I mean, in the eyes of the authorities. He was a major player at mm. the time. Mm. But he wasn't involved in, no, he was in, not involved, in Bloody no. Sunday as such. Um, he was an opponent of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Tell me how that was expressed, how serious, how vocal was his opposition? Uh, he was immediately opposed to it. Um, he has a very robust exchange during the treaty debates initially with Arthur Griffith. He points out an article that Griffith wrote in 1914 criticising Dominion Home Rule and essentially says to Griffith, how is that any different? And Griffith says, well, this is different. This treaty, this you know, the Anglo-Irish Treaty is a sovereign treaty between two nations. I stand over every word of what I said in 1914. And essentially, what McDonough is saying is that Griffith is a hypocrite. And again, like he just he's, he's very argumentative. He, he puts his point across very forcefully. And what's very interesting about his contribution during the treaty debates, he's one of the rare few that actually mentions partition. Now, he probably wouldn't have been familiar with the issues, particularly amongst nationalists in Northern Ireland, due to his role as director of the Belfast boycott. But at one point, he says that there's a good many Irishmen and there's a good many nationalists in Ulster, and you're giving them up to their enemies. Like he puts that explicitly in his contribution in the treaty debates. So it's not a lengthy contribution, mm. but it's just as interesting in light of the fact that we always say partition is very rarely discussed. And very much of a piece with the opposition to the treaty of the survivors, if you like, of yeah. the executed of 1916, people like Margaret Pierce. Oh, example. very much. And he, do, he does evoke, like, like them, he does evoke the dead. Like at one point he says that... Um, People say that John Redmond was a practical man and Patrick Pierce was the visionary, but we know now that Pierce was the practical man and John Redmond was only a visionary. Like you know, so he evokes that as well, like the, the bones of the dead, so to speak. Uh, to deviate slightly from his revolutionary career, something that absolutely fascinated uh, me, and I suppose it uh, demonstrates my own interests and my own prejudices. But he was the lawyer for Boss Croker. Now, Boss Croker, to the uninitiated, uh, Boss Croker was former Tammany Hall political machine boss who leaves America under uh, quite a few clouds and uh, comes to Ireland and uh, breeds horses and lives in, in what's now the British ambassador's residence in, mm. in Sandyford in Dublin. But he dies in 1922. But before his death, and they both die in the same year, before his death, he becomes Boss Croker's lawyer. Yeah, well, this is, this is the one thing, as you know yourself, Miles, when you do research, there's some connections you just can't quite make. What the first 
example I see of this is that Joseph McDonough applies to join the bar in late 1921. Now, how that leads to him becoming essentially the lawyer for Boss Croker and subsequently his widow, Beulah, I can't make that connection just yet. There is a reference made in one document that Michael Collins had to help Joseph McDonough get a passport to the United States. One of his grandsons has implied to me he probably would have made at least one or two visits in early 1922 to the United States to represent Boss Croker's interests over there. Um, he's one of the pallbearers mm. at Boss Croker's funeral, along with Arthur Griffith. Like, it's one of the few events, Boss Croker's funeral, in early 1922, that both pro and anti-treaty Sinn Féin representatives attend together with no no rancor that I, that I can gather anyway. Joseph McDonough often recurs in the press as representing uh, Beulah Croker's interest. At one point, uh, his son, this is his son from his first marriage, wants to come over and visit his father's grave. And he complains to the press that essentially his stepmother wouldn't allow him to do that. And Joseph McDonough writes on behalf of Beulah Croker to the press. It's published in some newspapers. This is in roughly mid-1922, where he kind of says, well, look, if, if the son wants to come visit his father's grave, all he has to do is approach me. So he was very much there as the public face of mm. the Croker family's interests. Did he take an active part in the Civil War? It's interesting at the start of the Civil War. So, I mean, I think one interesting aspect about Joseph McDonough is an exclusively political figure. He's not involved in the IRA. He's not involved in the fighting. He's involved very much the activists, you know, the political activity of, of the revolutionary movement during the War of Independence. But at the start of the Civil War, he becomes editor briefly of Fulton the Heron, the Republican News Sheet. That's often associated with Erskine Childers, who obviously took it on board when, when uh, McDonough was subsequently imprisoned. He's mentioned it being at the anti-treaty IRA garrison on York Street, just off St. Stephen's Green. And when the Battle of Dublin ends, he is arrested by the National Army not long thereafter. He's taken to Portobello Barracks with Robert Barton. There's not much evidence that he was involved in fighting. He's just mentioned that he was assisting the IRA garrison there. Now, what's very unusual is that him and Barton are mentioned as having escaped Portobello Barracks not long thereafter. Now, I think it's probably most likely they were probably let go by sympathisers or people who maybe not sympathetic with their cause but knew them and let them go. And there's a very bizarre press release issued by the government that said, well, you know, capturing McDonough and Barton was wasted labour because we were going to let them go anyway, which is a very unusual reaction to someone escaping. Ah, we were going to let them go anyway, so, you know, let them at it. Like, But in September 1922, he's re-arrested, I presume, under the same charge, and then he's brought to Mountjoy Jail. And this is where we kind of coming to the last uh, chapter of his mm. life. Yeah, because uh, this was one imprisonment that he did not survive. Well, he did technically survive, but you reckon that this is what broke him. Yeah, well, sometimes there's some books that say he was on hunger strike during the period. He wasn't. He had, he had been on hunger strike three times previously. And, you know, as we know now, like people who kind of come out of the hunger strikes and don't see them all the way through, it does do damage to their bodies and their nervous system and so on. So he's in Mountjoy Jail. Actually, he's visited by the new legal representatives of Beulah Croker very briefly. Richard Mulcahy has to give them a special dispensation to meet Joseph McDonough in prison so he can hand over all the legal affairs there. He seems to get very ill then in October, November 1922 while in Mountjoy Jail. Um, he has an inflammation of the eye initially, but then it's diagnosed by the prison authorities as something more serious. Now, he's put in a dilemma here because at the time, the what becomes the Free State Government, then the Provisional Government, was offering Republican prisoners a means of release by signing what's referred to as the form of undertaking. So what this was, was to recognise the Free State Government and say, you're not going to take part in the Civil War anymore. And this is what Joseph McDonough says. If you, if he's told this by Philip Cosgrave, brother WT, who's Governor Mountjoy, if you sign this, you will be released. And this puts Joseph McDonough in a dilemma because obviously this means kind of renouncing, you know, his republicanism or his opposition anyway to the free state. 
And there's fascinating um, documents in his prison file and also in Philip Cosgrave's papers. So essentially there's a correspondence that goes back and forth while Joseph McDonough is quite ill. And at one point, Philip Cosgrave writes to Joseph McDonough's wife and he said, I had a meeting with your husband today. And he said to me, if you write to him and ask him to sign this form of undertaking, he will sign it. So this is Joseph McDonough trying to come up with a, obviously a moral justification that his mm. wife says to him, sign this, you're sick you know, get better and come home. Like this, this would be the means to release him. And according to his file in the National Archives, there's a discussion with a priest and he says to the priest, well, I will do my utmost to end the civil war. Like I will, I will meet those on my side. I'll help end it and so on. And he does a direct appeal to W.T. Cosgrave, who he would have known from his days in Dublin Corporation and his brief involvement with his, with his tax recovery firm. And after he signs the form of undertaking the cabinet, arrange for his release, McDonough requests to be treated by Oliver St. John Gogarty, who had been a surgeon and that, and he's taken to the Matter Hospital. Now, fortunately, he, it was found to be appendicitis that he had, very severe. And then he also develops peritonitis, his abdomen was inflamed and so on. And it's there in the Matter Hospital on the 25th of December 1922 with his wife, May, by his side, that he unfortunately dies. Why do you think he has? I mean, I have to admit, I had, I knew nothing about him, absolutely yeah. nothing about him. And you know what you've described is the life, you know, a compressed period, if you like, mm. of the life of a, of a very interesting and very prominent man. Why has he been forgotten? Yeah, it still fascinates me. I mean, I've talked to his family about this, like, and they're they're often struck by it too. I think more than anything, he's an exclusively political figure. He's active in Sinn Féin. He's active in the Dáil. He's active in local government and so on. He's not one of the IRA heroes of renown. He's not like his brother. He wasn't executed. I mean, he essentially dies of numerous ailments in Mountjoy Jail. Now, he, I mean, he was in prison for his cause and so on. I mean, he's very well remembered and he seems to have been very well liked by his contemporaries. Like, like Ernie O'Malley writes a very interesting account of him during his last weeks. Of course, O'Malley was wounded during the Civil War. He's in Mountjoy himself. He's being treated in the same ward as McDonough initially. And he talks about meeting McDonough in the ward and he says uh, McDonough was being treated there and then a new man, a new prisoner is put in the hospital bed beside McDonough and McDonough, who was bald, uh, says to O'Malley, who's your man with the hair like mine? Like, Which I think is just remarkable that he's there cracking a joke and he's literally dying. There's no major retrospective of his life done until Lily O'Brennan, who is a former Common Man activist, uh, writes a lengthy retrospective on his life for the Christmas edition of the Irish Press in 1934. And she calls him one of the greatest young Irishmen of his day, which I think is extraordinary praise from mm. any contemporary to have. And she talks about his, you know, his skills as a political activist, his, his warm Tipperary brogue, as she describes the way like he, he, he dresses, like the election crowds and so on. Like she seems to speak very fondly of him. That's the most lengthy example I can find. But he doesn't seem to have had a even a Fianna Fáil or Sinn Féin coming named after him. There's no, up until recently, there's no memorials to him. His grandchildren are finally putting a headstone over his grave in Glasnevin um, in a private ceremony in a few weeks. Now, he's listed on the headstone of his parents-in-law. He's buried in a grave behind them with some of his, with actually his uh, his wife May and two of his brothers-in-law. But he has no headstone himself. Like, And it's just another detail to me that's just, it's so remarkable mm. how forgotten he's been. I mean, every time I mention... Uh, Joseph McDonough to other historians. They all know Thomas. Like, we yeah, all know Thomas, absolutely. like, celebrating stories. And there's a, we, we're very lucky that there's a lot of material there related to Thomas's life that we can look at. Like, he published a lot and so on. Like, but it's just fascinating to me that Joseph McDonough, you know, man of such ability and, like, the amount of roles he was involved in during the revolution period, like, the tireless energy he put into all of them, it's just been really eclipsed and forgotten.
Well, congratulations on bringing him to the attention of a wider audience. We'll Thank have you. to leave it there. We've been talking about Joseph McDonough, uh, TD, uh, the, the brother of uh, Thomas McDonough. And maybe that's one of the things that, uh, that haunts him, to be the brother of, the son of, the wife of, whatever. Uh, the book is called Alderman Joseph McDonough, TD, Tipperary's Forgotten Revolutionary Politician, published by uh, Tipperary in the Decade of Revolution and is available from their website, tiprevolution.ie. The author is Jared Shannon. Jared, many thanks for joining us on the History Show. Thank you very much, Maz. After the break, we'll visit Bethlehem and hear about the historic site traditionally believed to be the birthplace of Jesus. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Christmas is peak season for tourism in the town of Bethlehem on the West Bank in Palestine. People from all over the world flock to the Church of the Nativity, built on the grotto traditionally believed to be the birthplace of Jesus Christ. Colin Flynn visited the town recently and he sent us this report. 2,300 years ago, the small village of Bethlehem was located in the hills of Judea, close to the Dead Sea in the Middle East, and it was a vibrant agricultural region. Around five miles south of the city of Jerusalem, and located on top of an enormous aquifer, Bethlehem provided fresh water, bread, almonds, olives, and other produce to the main city. Bethlehem was a small, small village. And Bethlehem was surrounded with wheat fields. And there's many shepherds and farmers. They was living in these fields. From here, all the wheat, all the bread, and then the meat and the, the sheep. It was the, the food basket for Jerusalem. The shepherds in Bethlehem, they was playing a good role in taking care of the sheep. And, you know, like, and they growing up the sheep. And in the same time, they was taking them from Bethlehem to Jerusalem for sacrifices to the temple. And so, so Bethlehem, there was a lot of movement in it, but still it was small. The people who lived and worked here were poor peasants. The small town was considered nothing out of the ordinary. But about 2,000 years ago, all of that changed when this place became known as the site of a remarkable event, an event that split time in two, and made Bethlehem one of the most famous towns in history. Gone rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay, for Jesus Christ our Saviour was born on Christmas Day, to save us all from Satan's past when we were gone astray. Father Ramai Asarika is the parish priest of the Basilica of the Nativity in Bethlehem today. This place was marginalized before. When Mary and Joseph came, no one was, you know, give them the opportunity, you know, to stay in their home. The only place that was offered for them is a marginalized stable or cave. And this marginalized cave, it become the most important cave. Here is where Jesus decided to be born. In Bethlehem, in Israel, this blessed babe was born. And... Of course, it's impossible to prove that Jesus was born here, as reported in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. 
But even within a hundred years of Jesus dying, there was evidence that pilgrims were already coming here to worship at this site. Now we are sitting here outside the Basilica, just metres from where the spot is, where they believe Jesus was born in that manger over 2,000 years ago. How did it come to be that they concluded this was the spot? I want you to know that since Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the locals, they noticed where Jesus was born. We have an oral culture. So generation after generation, they was telling each other that this is the birthplace of Jesus. And in the second century, the Romans and the emperor of Rome in that time, Hadrian, he was sacrificing the, the Christians and he built an altar above the place where Jesus was born. But in the same time, he marked the place. Hadrian marked the place with a temple to Adonis, which stood for about 200 years. But it was a powerful woman who really established Bethlehem as a place of Christian worship. Saint Helena was the mother of Constantine, the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity. She went on a pilgrimage to Palestine and while there resolved to build a church on the holy site. In the 4th century, in the year 326, Saint Helena started to build the church above where Jesus was born. Saint Helena consulted with locals and bishops who pointed to the spot where they had worshipped for the previous 200 years. And it was on that spot, over the cave believed to be where the manger was, that she built a church. The town was now on the map. When it started, they built it fourth, in the 4th century, 326, the first time. During the history till today, the church, every year, it become more important. Every year, we can see how God protected this church from different things. You can see many nations, many people, they came and they took the control of the land and the church. And the locals here, they consider the church as Noah's Ark because it, you know, all the people survived. here... survived. Yes, survived and in the same time it protects the people who come to hide in it. Because throughout the years when times of trouble and many times of trouble have come here to Bethlehem, the people have taken shelter inside the church. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. From the, you know, from many years since they built it till today, the people still consider the church as a place where they can hide from danger. For 2,000 years, people have been coming here as pilgrims, and today is no different. Inside the Basilica of the Nativity, it is packed with people from all over the world. And the original church, which was built by St. Helena, was rebuilt in more or less its present form by Emperor Justinian in the 6th century, making the Church of the Nativity one of the oldest Christian churches in existence. This is something beautiful that we can see here. And I want you to understand... Large flames flicker on top of candles everywhere. Light shines in through the stained glass windows and some of the wooden floors carved out, exposing under it a piece of the original mosaic tiled floor from the 4th century. If you take a look from uh, you know this spot here, you will see the original floor of the church. It's from Constantine, from the 4th century. 
But to get to the manger itself, you have to walk down a narrow stone passage under the altar and into a small cave, and there, on the ground, marked by a simple steel star, is the spot where it is believed Mary gave birth to Jesus. This is the place where God chose that Jesus would be born in. This is the place where the history become two parts. Before and after Christ, you are in now. Crowds of pilgrims walk through. Some kneel and pray, some sing, and some are so overcome, they even cry. Oh, it's just incredibly moving. It's like you're having the real spiritual experience you come for here in the Holy Land. So moving, so moving to see. Oh, it's a very moving experience, and um, that's all I can really say about it. You know, it's one of these things where words fail you. It's incredible to think that the history of all Christianity and the history of what billions of people have followed for thousands of years all started here where this small steel star now lies. Star of Colin Flynn was reporting there from Bethlehem on the long and storied history of the World Heritage Site, the Church of the Nativity. After the break, the unknown men and women who assisted the Anglo-Irish treaty negotiators in London. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. This month, of course, saw the hugely important centenary of the Anglo-Irish Treaty coming into effect, creating the Irish Free State on the 6th of December 1922. The names of the plenipotentiaries who negotiated that treaty are, of course, well-known. Names like Arthur Griffith, Michael Collins. But there were dozens of other people involved in the negotiations in London. Advisors, secretaries, bodyguards, messengers and support staff. Their stories are told in the book The Men and Women of the Anglo-Irish Treaty Delegations 1921, a commemorative volume written and edited by descendants of the delegation members. Our producer, Lorcan Clancy, found out more. Mary Falkert is not a name we know today. It's not a name we associate with the Anglo-Irish Treaty, but she was a big hit with journalists in 1921 in London, where she was the head cook for the Irish delegation. I mean, I loved finding out about the people who have been totally forgotten in history. Mary Falkert was from Oldcastle in County Meath. She seemed to be an older woman, the older of most of them there. She's described as matronly and jolly and the mother of the party. And the English and American newspapers were fascinated by her and they kept asking her about her cooking. And of course, it was very stereotypical about potatoes and Irish stew. That's Fiona Murray, co-editor of the book. But they actually quoted some of her views. 
they said she had a subtle wit when they asked her about potatoes she to quote her she said that the delegates may be too busy to think about what they're going to eat but they're not too busy to know if their food is well cooked they'd die on english cooking because the english cooks mistreat irish potatoes they peel them but we irish always cook them in their jackets and a journalist said that it's said in Downey Street it's her seasoning put so much pep in the Irish delegates. So she had a pretty responsible job there feeding, you know, 40 or 50 people. And it was the same for some of the other, well, the background people, the couriers, the, um, the bodyguards, the, the secretaries. There's some lovely stories which we got from the families. This book is full of stories like that. Stories of the people behind the scenes who provided support and sustenance as the negotiators took on the might of the British Empire and the resources of the British Civil Service. During these negotiations, the signatories obviously worked so hard and they carried the can. But they weren't experts in everything. They needed the economic advisers. They needed these advisers. They needed the defence, military, intelligence, economic, all these advisers. They needed people to cook for them. They needed people to type. They couldn't have done it on their own. And... I think it's part of the our Irish story and it's a shame not to remember people who even had a small part and I think it's only nowadays we're beginning to remember that women, people with lower, lower paid jobs, all had a role to play. So my name is Edith Sagara, born O'Shiel and the book really has, I think, 20 authors although Fiona Murray and I, who are the editors, we actually wrote it but it was with the help of the families and my particular concern was that the women should be introduced, should be part of it. And that was specific in the title. I'm a, actually a social historian of literature, so I'm always much more interested in what ordinary people say. And when we went into it, we historians had identified some 41 members of those who travelled. And we came up with 30 more names. And on the occasion of the launch... We were so pleased to see that the granddaughter of one of the waiters was now very high up in Brussels. <laughs> so, and this, to our group, in a sense, proved just how far Ireland has come. Ida's grandfather, Timothy Smiddy, was a financial advisor to the delegation. As a young man, he spent some time as a seminarian, but decided against a life in the priesthood. He then studied commerce in Cologne, and later became the first professor of economics at University College Cork. He was simply a financial expert. He gave financial expertise, and then he wrote a, quite an important paper for Collins on how to manage Ireland's obligations to Britain under the treaty. And this is in the, in the National Archives. Michael Collins sent him to Washington after the treaty split, and he stayed there until 1929, making contacts and setting up diplomatic relations with the USA. My grandfather was the most interesting person. He was, unlike me, he was very small. I don't think he was even five foot. And sometimes very small people are even more assertive than very tall people. Now, he was, because of his years in the seminary, he was not a touchy-feely person. You didn't have... When, when I was interested in getting coaching in economic history when I was doing, studying in UCD. He was wonderful. He was clear. He was a marvellous teacher. But he never gave us a present. He never gave us a hug. <laughs> you know, he wasn't like a grandfather in that sense. But he was the most interesting man, and he played the piano like Chopin himself. 
Fiona Murray's grandfather, Dermot Fawcett, was also an advisor to the treaty delegation, providing guidance on economic matters. I was never aware that my grandfather had been involved in the negotiations and it was only a few years ago when we discovered boxes of documents 50 years old in an old family house in West Cork and went through them that we realised he had been involved. He was educated at the North Mon in Cork but I think then he himself did a lot to educate himself further and he became an expert in, I suppose, industrial development. All his papers have been given to the Cork City and County Archives to be viewed and to be gone through by historians who might get a better sense of the job that he did over there. Among Dermot Fawcett's papers is his diary, where he made short notes every day. Notes like negotiations broke down and simply treaty signed between Ireland and Great Britain. And that same day, that evening, he'd written down that he went off with Arthur Griffith and Arthur Griffith's wife, a few others, to the vaudeville and they had supper in the in the Tuscan restaurant there. And the next morning they even visited, he wrote down Sir John Lavery's house to look at portraits before they all took the boat back to Ireland. So he's jotted down various evening things, suppers, events as well, which are interesting to read now. Very small, faded pencil, but you can read them. I did know him, although I was only a young teenager when he died. And I remember just this elderly man. I believe uh, he was very black and white in his views, very a man full of integrity. He was lovely with us as children, but he never, we were too young really to talk to him about anything that he'd gone through in the past. Though my older brother did ask him, I think, would he consider writing his memoirs? And Grandad said, no, that there'd be too much hurt. I know he spoke about it to his sons and daughters and to particular friends. So I wish I'd known more. But you know yourself at the time, you never realised the importance because we knew nothing of what he'd done. We literally didn't know. In general, we got the sense that there was tremendous democracy in the delegation, like because they ate together and because they socialised together. I said somewhere in the book, you know, we started... At such a disadvantage, our key people had left school at 13 and 16. The others had all been to Eton, to Oxford. They'd honed their skills. And, of course, Lloyd George uh, was such a, an operator. <laughs> and I think uh, everybody has a right to being remembered. They were ordinary men and women doing an amazing job in a period which was very stressful for them. One of the secretaries, Kathleen McKenna, Private Secretary to Griffith, wrote afterwards that she literally broke down and cried when the treaty was signed because she was had been in such fear and doubt and despair. She and another secretary used to be saying rosaries in their bedrooms at night. They were so frightened of what was going to come. They went through a lot, all these people. I, I was amazed when I found out that. That book, once again, is called The Men and Women of the Anglo-Irish Treaty Delegations, 1921. And it's available online at buythebook.ie. That's B-U-Y, thebook.ie. That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. <laughs>